Can you tell me where the grave is? She asked. What part of the cemetery? She just needs to drive by and see it. A church member asked me that on behalf of a friend a few years ago, just after the second of three wrenching funerals in our congregation within a week's time. The friend was recovering from surgery and missed the memorial service for the woman we had just buried, and she wanted to know where the body had been laid to rest. I think if she can just go and see it, the church member said, I think it will help her. She just needs some way to get some closure. She just needs some closure. When we talk about torn apart places in preaching, I don't know of any more ragged than the funeral or the memorial service. Emotions are raw and all over the place, and mostly we try to stifle those because honestly we've never learned how to express them. Death is one of those things we're fixated on, but nobody wants to talk about. In Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch Album wrote, everybody knows they're going to die, but no one believes it. We tell ourselves that death is a natural and inevitable part of life, yet for all of our dispassionate and precise logic, we still act as if living and dying are things that happen to two different sets of people. We all know we're going to die, but we don't want to believe it. And it seems to me that a lot of our struggle with death reflects our hesitancy about grief. We never know what to say to a person who's grieving, and so with the best of intentions, Christian people often resort to horribly flawed comments like, everything happens for a reason, or God must have needed another angel, or you'll get over it in time. Well, good grief. Grief is not something we get over. Grief is not something we endure or medicate or wait until it passes. Grief is a human-shaped hole in our hearts. The poet Megan O'Rourke writes, We live in a culture so preoccupied with happiness that we forget grief is not something over which we achieve closure. It is a human undertaking, a slow, sticky process of allowing our love for another to take a different shape. So you have to sympathize with Mary and Martha. They asked for Jesus to come. He was down near the Jordan where John had been baptizing, close enough to Bethany, 20 miles maybe, really close if your best friend is dying. But Jesus doesn't seem terribly concerned until Lazarus is dead. All human hope is lost. It is too late. When Jesus finally gets to Bethany, the sisters in the village are in full mourning. Mary greets Jesus not with words of welcome, but words of accusation. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Grief is brutal, even for people of faith. Why didn't Jesus come sooner? Where was he? And what follows is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept been there? Too late to fix, too late to call out, too late even to hope. Lazarus is dead, and only then does Jesus decide to go to Bethany. He arrives on the fourth day. We talked last night about the third day. The third day is when God acts, 
But here in Bethany, Jesus arrives on the fourth day. The fourth day is exactly one day past hope. Now, please don't jump ahead of me in this passage. And when you're preaching a funeral, please don't let yourself rush to, I am the resurrection and the life, too quickly. Yes, in the end, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But as far as we know, he is the only person for whom Jesus does so. Because in every, every single instance, except this one, in every other case in the history of the world, the loved one dies eventually. The brother does not make it through surgery. The EMTs arrive too late. The long-awaited pregnancy ends in miscarriage. The immense heart of the beloved grandparent finally gives out, and with loss comes grief. And those two tiny words of John eleven thirty five 35 give us a clue to the only appropriate response. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but one we dismiss at our own peril. When you try to take someone's pain away from them, one writer says, you don't make it better. You just tell them that it's not okay to talk about their pain. The local newspaper in my town puts out a quarterly circular and clearly May was a slow news month because they published a piece about me and our ministry together at New Providence. In the interview, the writer asked what I love about this job and I told him, honestly, I love funerals. This congregation has given me way more practice at that than I ever wanted. The first two years I was there, I did over 30 funerals a year. But I explained to him that it always feels like holy ground to gather with families after a loved one has died, to be invited into that very vulnerable place. We talk a bit about the service, but mostly we talk about their beloved. And it always segues into storytelling, which is incredibly healing. In order to move into the future, we have to remember and give thanks for the past. Jesus wept. I am firmly convinced that the most significant ministry I do is not preaching at the funeral, but meeting with the family to prepare for the funeral. Because that's where we figure out what the way we live says about what we believe. Laura Hauser raised that question in an editorial in one of our Presbyterian publications recently. Laura's husband, Scott, was a Presbyterian a PCUSA pastor, beloved pastor in Wisconsin, who died two years ago from cancer at the age of 37. And Laura writes about her own experience, but she includes that profound question, what does how you live say about your theology? She says for her, grief is a big part of my life. Grief is hard. Grief is scary. And grief is not well understood. But I don't want to deny grief, she says. To do so would be to, not, to de not deny the absence and the scarcity and the importance of what was but is now gone. I don't want to deny grief, but I do want to hold it in tension with its true opposite, gratitude. Gratitude, she says, is the acute sense of presence the acknowledgement of abundance, the joyful response to what God has given us. 
The Swiss psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about the death of a loved one this way. You will never be the same again, she says, nor would you want to be. And so I think the very best pastoral work we can do is to help our people learn how to walk alongside one another through the valley of the shadow. By God's grace, we are not alone, and the funeral should reflect that. It is a community affair, just as surely as baptism or marriage or the Lord's Supper. There are no words from any of us or from anyone that will fix or change anything, but there are airline tickets to arrange and laundry to be done, and dogs to be walked, and hands to be held. And whatever it is, we do it together. Now the thing is, when we do that together, it means that we all bring our own heartaches with us. We never grieve just one thing. As the congregation gathers for a memorial service, we may be focused on one particular loss, but the reality is that all those other losses we carry around with us are present as well. Ten days ago, ten days ago, Nadia Boltz-Weber preached an exquisite sermon at the funeral of her friend, Rachel Held Evans. If you have not yet seen or heard it, I commend that to you. In response to the question, woman, why are you weeping? Nadia said that, among other things, I'm crying because grief has opened the door and let in so much other grief, and I don't know how to uninvite its friends to this party. I get that, and I know you do too. With each new loss, I'm grieving because of this particular death, but I'm also grieving because my dad died. And my 37-year-old friend lost her wrestling match with cancer. And I'm grieving because we're keeping children in cages at the border. And because every single day there is another senseless shooting because we won't talk about our addiction to guns and power. And I'm crying because black and brown and female bodies are apparently less important to us than white male bodies. And I'm crying because my own mother doesn't recognize me anymore when I go visit. Grief has opened the door, and I don't know how to uninvite its friends. Several months ago, several months ago, I laid out my plans for these four sermons around these moments in preaching, and I knew that tonight I would be preaching about grief and about the funeral sermon and how we accompany our people through those difficult moments. And then yesterday afternoon, I walked back into my room after lunch to a phone call from home. On Monday morning, a 38-year-old teacher in my small town shot and killed his eight-year-old son, set the house on fire, and then shot and killed himself. His brother and his cousin and their families are all members of the congregation that I serve. And their kids are the same age as Clark, the son who died. All of them had been together for a birthday, family birthday party on Sunday night. Now I tell you that recognizing full well that two days ago I reminded us about preaching from our scars and not from our wounds, but now I find myself preaching about grief while I ponder how to go home and preach to a grieving congregation and community on Sunday morning. Where do we find words when there are no words? 
Megan Devine is a mental health therapist who has spent her entire career helping people, people dig under the surface of things. And then 10 years ago, she watched her partner drown just a few feet away from her. Now she says she's come to a new understanding of grief, and it is this. Some things in life cannot be fixed. They can only be carried. There is pain in this world that you can't be cheered out of, she says. You don't need solutions. You don't need to move on. You need someone to see your grief. You need someone to hold your hand while you stand in horror, staring at the hole that was your life. Some things cannot be fixed. They can only be carried. And I think that's our hard and holy calling as pastors and preachers. Nobody needs us to fix anything. The ragged edges of grief are places that will never, ever come back together again. No one is asking us to do that for them, and our funeral sermons should not be the place we try. They just need us to sit with them in it. There's not a person among us, nor anyone in any of our collected congregations who has not had moments of wondering where God was in a time of loss. Why did God let her die? Where was God when I needed help? All of us have wondered at God's seeming absence, but sometimes in the wondering, Jesus shows up even after the tomb is sealed. His arrival prompted by nothing more than raw emotion. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. I don't know if this is any comfort, but as I was doing sermon preparation on this passage from John 11, I discovered something that had never registered with me before. The name Lazarus is a derivation of the Hebrew name Eliezer. Eliezer means God has helped. Toward the end of the 19th century, the wife of a young minister in Glasgow died he buried her on Friday and preached the following Sunday. His sermon was entitled, When Life Falls Apart. In it, he said, when one complains about ankle-deep water, what will they do when the swelling streams come upon them? When little troubles come and we go astray, what will happen when all falls in? And then he says, I have been in the swelling current. My feet have touched the bottom, and the good news I bring to you is this. The bottom is solid. You will survive. Lazarus means God has helped. Thanks be to God. Amen.